to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the section in Scripture, specifically in 1 Thessalonians, that is most noted for the theme and topic of the resurrection. And when you think of the resurrection, it's hard to not think of the passage that we're going to cover in the next couple weeks. And so I'm just energized and excited for us to be thinking about the Lord's return and about how we are going to be fit with our resurrection bodies and just all the hope and joy that's surrounding texts like these. So let me read verses 13 through 18 now as we consider the Lord's return. Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This text is a call for encouragement. There's a lot in here in this premier resurrection text that we can learn about the Lord's return, about what happens when people die, about what happens with the people who are still here when the Lord returns. I mean, all of that is here for us to learn. But I want you to kind of go helicopter up with this text and just realize that Paul wants to encourage the church, and specifically this church that was hurting and grieving. They were struggling. If you look at verse 13, it says, He writes, so that they may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Paul wants these infant baby Christians to have hope. Divine assurance and certainty that Jesus is going to return with their loved ones who had just died. Now, many of us have experienced the death of loved ones. I was thinking of this when I was studying this text that a year and a half ago, my grandfather died. He died of congestive congestive heart failure and was 94 and had been suffering uh, at great length. And so, in one sense, we were very relieved for him to die. We were relieved for him to fall asleep. Had a lot of memories, a lot of love for him and he for me. And so when they asked me and my brother to preach his funeral, it was tough. It was hard. And it was harder even anticipating it. Just thinking, you know, how am I going to be able to swallow hard and communicate? And I know that many of you have spoken eulogies and at funerals of ones that you loved and have lost. And it's difficult. It's hard to work through that emotion. But I knew that if I was overwhelmed with excessive grief as I preached, I would be rendered ineffective to minister to other people. I could not do what verse 18 says, which is to encourage one another with these words. Couldn't do it, but I did it. 
by the Lord's grace. And I did it because I experienced what all of us experience as Christians. We have a sorrow mingled with comfort. And that's our title of this sermon series, Sorrow Mingled with Comfort. I borrowed it from the pastor and theologian John Calvin. He said of this text, let the sorrow of the godly be mingled with comfort. I just thought that is the paradox of the Christian life. We have hope. We lose people in the present, but we have hope as we look future, as we think about our reunion once again with our loved ones. Grieving is part of the human experience. We will grieve. It's normal. It's natural. It's part of how the Lord has wired us to heal. These times are promised to us. Job 5 says, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. So it's coming, but at the same time, we have the bedrock assurance of hope. The word hope, El Pis, is used throughout the New Testament, and it always means... Not wishful thinking, but a divine certainty that something is going to happen. It's not wishful thinking, oh, I hope it's going to happen. It's it's guaranteed. The hope that Jesus is going to return isn't a maybe, okay? It's truth. It's part of the gospel. The resurrection is part of the gospel. And that's what takes a little bit of the stinger out when we lose people in death. 1 Corinthians 15, 55, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? a lot of people who live in hopelessness, who don't know about the afterlife, who aren't clear on the resurrection and these truths. But we, as verse 13 says, are not uninformed. We have hope. We have hope. That's what Paul is doing. He wants to steer these believers away from excessive grief toward real hope, biblical hope, Christian hope, the hope that's found in the resurrection. And so if you're taking notes, Paul comforts believers by casting the resurrection in two directions. What do I mean by that? First of all, he's going to cast the resurrection backwards in the past in the context of Jesus first raising from the dead. He goes backwards first. And then he's going to, after that, springboard future going forward to our ultimate resurrection. Two directions. He wants, he wants the church to get out of the depression of the moment. There were a struggling church that undoubtedly knew that, uh, undoubtedly were suffering the fact that they had lost people that they loved deeply. I mean, perhaps in the first six months of, of their infant stage, some of the people in the church had, had died for the faith. Acts 17 talks about people being dragged out of homes and, and perhaps even killed. And so they probably lost some people in the early church, people that they loved. Maybe they were grieving over loved ones. I don't know. But they were upset about people who had died who were Christians. And Paul wanted to shepherd them. So he comforts them, first of all, in terms of the past. In terms of looking back to the resurrection of Jesus. This is verses 13 and 14. Paul knew they needed a pastor. He knew that right now, more than anything, they needed a shepherd. He was transitioning out of being a preacher, exhorting them, saying, look, evangelize, verses 9 through 12 of chapter 4. Evangelize um, the lost by loving each other. Evangelize the lost, be a testimony to the world by working jobs and having integrity. And now he wants to pull out sort of the scalpel and, and get to the heart and do some soul surgery and do some soul care for this church that was grieving, that was hurting. He knew they needed a pastor. So he's beginning a new train of thought here. 
He had heard from Timothy, who had gone as one of the missionaries who had first evangelized this church. Paul sent Timothy back to the church to report how it was going, and Timothy probably told them that they were grieving. So he wants to apply the resurrection to them. Just like he had already mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 that they were to wait for the appearance of the Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, the Son of God, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath of God, from the wrath to come. And he's now applying the resurrection. Let me say this. You know, with the gospel, it's easy to think about Jesus dying for our sins, right? We think he died for us. Our sins are gone. We have guaranteed heaven. But I think sometimes it's hard for us to think about the fact that Jesus is going to return. And that he was raised from the dead, and because he was raised, we'll be raised too. I don't know why that's the case. Maybe it's because in history, we know that we can document from Scripture that he died, he was buried, and he rose again. But sometimes when we look at Scripture, it's harder for us to think future and that we're going to now participate in his return and we're going to be ushered up, given resurrection bodies. But all of that's the gospel. And all of that is what we must get our heads around if we're going to enjoy the comfort and hope that we need especially when we work through the grief of losing loved ones. You need all the gospel. That's what Paul is giving us here, and that's what I want to try to bring to us in a teaching, that you reach back, and the past, it launches you future. And and you go, yes, I believe Jesus died for my sins. He was buried, and he rose. And because of that assurance, it launches me to the assurance of a reunion with Christ, a reuniting with those who've gone before in heaven. These are classic passages in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 on the end times. They're, they are kind of the key end times passages. You've probably heard of the books, the Left Behind series, maybe, by uh, Jenkins and LaHaye. Uh, maybe some of you have even read those books or, or you know, have those books. There's also been uh, movies done by, uh, you know, different ones on those books, and you might remember the movie series, the Left Behind series in the 70s. Who remembers that? Who would admit that they remember that real to real? Yes. Uh, you know, I'm still working through what I saw in those movies. I'm, I'm, you know, I, <laughs> the helicopters, you know, the guillotines, those are some serious, um, serious moments for me as a kid. <sighs> the blessed real to reals. But I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, they woke me up. But Paul here, Paul here in this passage specifically, is keying in on how Jesus' return is a comfort, is a comfort. The reason you study the end times passages, by the way, isn't to get it all figured out. Uh, Different passages about the end times are are scattered throughout the Bible, and they're not laid out for us neatly and chronologically, though they do help us get a bit of a timeline about what's going to happen. Ultimately, we have to rest in the fact that we study the end times for holiness and for hope. For holiness, what what sort of people ought we to be when Jesus returns, when he splits the eastern sky? Holiness. We we want Jesus' return to bring a little bit of a, a shock of holiness to our conscience, where we say, man, I need to be right with the Lord when he returns, right? And then secondly, hope. Holiness and hope, those are the primary reasons and themes surrounding end times passages. Jesus, 
He said of himself in Matthew 24, 36, he said, Concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So we really don't need to know the precise time of Jesus' return. Jesus didn't even know when he was going to return. So Paul knew they needed a pastor. But look at verse 13 again. He knew they needed more information. He didn't want them to be uninformed. Now, when you're counseling someone that's grieving and, you're, and is hurting, more biblical information is not always the best move. I mean, it's, it's better just to be there with people and to gently use the Word of God as you would help people work through their struggle. Your presence is all, often most important in those moments, right? But Paul is giving more information because he wants the church to be able to lift out of themselves, to be able to see beyond their pain and see the hope of the resurrection. The New Testament was still being written. And though there were hints and windows into what the resurrection would be from the Old Testament, more information was necessary to fill in the data of what's going to happen to people when they die. He pictures people as being asleep, verse 13, and by him saying that, that people who have died are asleep, he's not saying that they're in a state of suspension, that they're in limbo. The Jehovah's Witnesses and the, the uh, Seventh-day Adventists would believe that when people die, they're in a soul sleep state until the resurrection. That's not true. When he, picture, when he talks about souls that are sleeping, he's picturing the rest the people being at rest in the Lord and that effect. And probably picking up on the idea that when someone dies who's in the Lord and their body is there, it's a, it's a picture, a metaphor, or a, a euphemism of someone who is resting. We know that Philippians 1.21 is where Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. So immediately, if you die, you're gaining Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.8, be of good courage. We'd rather be away from the body and what? At home with the Lord. The thief on the cross, he was given the assurance. Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. That's Jesus' words to the thief in Luke 24. So the word cemetery, by the way, just kind of a sidebar, side note, actually means dormitory. And it's a picture of, of people who are at rest a resting place. But when Jesus talked about people being at rest, he was just talking about the serenity of death. The fact that, that it's precious when people die and go to be with the Lord. He's not talking about a soul sleep. He used the idea of someone sleeping when he spoke of the woman who he, I mean, the girl who he raised from the dead in Mark 5, 39. He said, the child is not dead, but merely sleeping. And he raised her from the dead. Acts 7.59 is where Stephen was stoned and martyred. He was the first Christian martyr. And his stones were being launched onto his body and head. He said, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And And Luke says, and when he had said this, he fell asleep. Death is horrific. It's awful. It's a product of the fall. It rips us to the core. But when we know that someone is dying and that they are a believer dying in the Lord, it's a picture of someone falling asleep. It's not soul sleep. It's just a picture of it as if a child is is resting and the soul is lively in worship in heaven all the while. So that's how Paul's using it. But this church was grieving to excess in verse 13. 
He says he didn't want them to grieve as others do. He didn't want that for them. He wanted them to to shoulder the burden by faith. And to grieve uh, is a picture of heavy sorrow. It's hope deferred that makes the heart sick. And he wanted them to heal. And so he did this by giving them more information about the resurrection. Job chapter 14 Verse 14 is where Job said, if a man dies, shall he live again? I mean, in the Old Testament, they they weren't crystal clear about what the afterlife would be. Ezekiel 37 is where God was having a conversation with the prophet Ezekiel. And he was talking about Israel as a nation that was dispersed and kind of away from from the Lord. And, you know, at, at points they were taken captive. And so he's talking about their spiritual state, but it's a, it's a window into the resurrection. Ezekiel chapter 31 says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel speaking, and he brought me out into the, in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. And God spoke in verse 3, and he said, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now, what I want you to do is focus in, listen in on what it looks like when these bones are enlivened. It's a physical dimension and spiritual. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you will live. I will lay sinews upon you. I will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you. And you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. It's resurrection language. Just flesh and bones. Heaven isn't just some ethereal, you know, sort of like um, experience in, you know, the netherworld type thing. Heaven is physical and it's reunion and it's relational and it's, it's filled with people you know and you worship with forever. Here's his prophecy. Ezekiel says, Behold, speaking for the Lord, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. Isn't that exciting? That's an allusion to what's going to happen. People are going to come up out of the grave like when Jesus died on the cross and all of a sudden the graves were opened and people were walking around speaking the message of Christ. These are resurrection illusions and that's what Paul is building upon biblically and now he's informing the future by giving more revelation. We'll look at next time in verse 15. It says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. See, Paul was hearing directly from Christ what was going to happen. And Paul couldn't resist but to tell this church exactly what was going to take place at the resurrection. And you know what? If you've lost people, if people have died that you love and you want to see again, yet you hang on to this revelation. This is revelation we need, right? We need this. And God has given it to us as a special gift. Unbelievers, they oftentimes believe in an afterlife. A lot of people aren't annihilationists that just believe you just kind of evaporate. Some people believe that way. A lot of people uh, believe in different forms and varieties of kind of heretical teaching like uh, incarnation, the idea that you come back as something else. It's kind of spiritual recycling, right? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, that, uh, the, the state of nirvana where you're kind of in an eternal state of, of peace and nothingness. But, but I don't know of religions and, and 
even wrong beliefs where they talk about resurrection in this way, where you're, where you're really coming back as who you were, but in a glorified state. He wanted their grief to be checked by faith. That's what he wanted. He wanted this church to be believing through the pain and suffering of loss. And you pick up on that in verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Stop there. That, that is a key phrase. What Paul is doing is saying, look, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to have excessive grief. I don't want you to not have hope. Why? How are we going to fix this? First of all, let's cast the resurrection backwards. Let's reach back to Jesus and the fact that you believe that Jesus died and rose again. You believe that. It's the foundation. It's the reason you're going to believe that he's coming again for you and that he's going to bring people and have them raise and you're going to raise together with them. Why? Because you believe first and foremost that Jesus died and rose. If you believe he rose, then you can believe in the resurrection. That's the key. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. He doesn't want them to be overly focused on the present, really. I mean, there's nothing wrong with grieving in the moment. It's everything right about that. But faith, it reaches backwards and faith reaches future, forward. It does. You get out of the present a bit and you get out of the hopelessness and depression of the moment. In verse 18, as I already alluded to, this is the call of the church for the church to shake everybody awake and say, look, let's believe together in the resurrection. Let's re-grip the resurrection. Paul knew they needed to re-grip Jesus's resurrection. Is going to the right place, which is our only foundation, which is the gospel. You know, I was thinking about um, the gospel and how we sing the gospel often in our songs, some of our modern worship. And, and there was a song that came on the radio this morning. We, when we prepare for church, oftentimes we're flying around, you know, diapers are flying around everywhere, juice is spilling. And clo- I mean, we just have such a wonderful, meditative, glorious morning coming to church. I've heard it said, don't worry about where the devil is because on Sunday morning because he's, he's going with us in our car on the way to church. Anyway, no, but, but all that to say, you know, we, we were listening to worship songs and this song came on and it just lifted me back into an earlier time in my Christian life. You ever do that? Have a song just kind of teleport you back? You just remember worshiping with fellow believers at a certain time, at a certain place, in a certain experience, going through a certain thing? That's what the gospel does to us. It should, it should get involved in our affections and it, it enlivens who we are and connects with our core and we remember who we are in Christ and it, it causes us when we reach back to be able to propel future and think about the Lord's return. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 18 is a great cross-reference. Paul asks directly this question. He says, if Christ be not risen, Right? Your faith is futile. Some translations, your faith is vain. It's empty. You're still in your sins. You're those who, uh, and those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished if Christ isn't risen. And he asked that question just to, just to beg your logic to say, look, of course you believe Jesus rose from the dead. And so of course those who have fallen asleep are fine and they will raise again. That's what he's doing. He's pastoring them. Through this text. One reason I think also why he went to the gospel 
and to talk about Jesus rising again is that for Jesus to rise again in our minds, we know that that concrete event took place. It's not ethereal, right? For us, by faith, looking at the truth and reading the story of the gospel, we believe Jesus rose again. We can document it in Scripture. And that's what he's doing. It's concrete and real. But you know what? Jesus rising again, the fact that he rose historically, that is as believable as Jesus returning and splitting the eastern sky and bringing all of those who've died before with him and rapturing the church and fitting us all with resurrection bodies. It's all part of the gospel. It's equally concrete. That's the historic past, and that will be the future, and it will be history. It will happen. It's an event that will take place. You know, sometimes we kind of, we're down on the disciples, aren't we? They walked with Jesus. They were with him personally. We said, man, if I had that opportunity, I would definitely be tracking with Jesus. If I was walking with him, seeing miracles, hearing his teaching, I would just get it, you know? I wouldn't be like those kind of block-headed disciples. I mean, who were they, right? They're just missing it. You ever do that? You're reading along and, you know, Jesus says, I'm going to die and rise again. And they're going, man, we're, we're confused on that. You know, we thought you were going to be this sort of political leader and ruler and takeover king. And, and you're this, you're talking about dying. What is that? Well, you know, sometimes we kind of enter into that blockheadedness, I think, when we ignore the next event that's coming in gospel history. And that's Jesus's return. Jesus said at that point to those disciples, hey, I'm going to die and rise again. Right. And now the scripture says Jesus is going to come again and bring those who've gone before and we're going to rise and we're going to have resurrection bodies. So in the same way, we need to anticipate this next event and think it through and let it affect our lives. He's saying in verse 14, if you're willing to rest your eternal soul on the fact that God raised Jesus, then you should be willing to hold on to the truth that God will raise your loved ones, your lost loved ones. Look at the second half of the verse. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. What's he saying? Paul's saying, look, since you believe Jesus rose In the same way, God, who's leading this redemptive event, will, through Jesus, bring all those back who have fallen asleep. You're you're concerned with your love about your loved ones. You're concerned with those who've just died, perhaps those who just had their heads chopped off for the faith. You're really upset about that, but you believe in the gospel and you believe Jesus rose. And so in the same way, you need to understand that Jesus is going to come back like a commander in chief, a general, and all of those who've ever died in the Lord, the army of God is going to come with him in that moment. Everybody who's ever died. It's, it's the event where all Christians for the first time are going to be in the same place at the same time. Every Christian throughout all the ages are going to be at that resurrection event. Just think about it. Now, is it personal? Yes. Will you see people that you've lost in the Lord, that, that you love, that are, that are in Christ, and you're going to see them personally? Yes. But there's going to be an expanse of people there that we won't have known before that time. People who have died in the Lord who are going to be resurrected. It says they're coming through Jesus, verse 14. This is um, the idea that people are qualified for, for resurrection because of the cross. Because the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, they will be 
there at the resurrection. And God will bring with him, with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep. Jesus is pictured at this point as leading the people back. It's leading back. The word bring means lead. It's the idea of everybody coming together in one place at the same time. The universal church will be collected all together. So what does it mean for someone to be resurrected? Let's just talk about this for a little bit. What's it mean? Wayne Grudem, who wrote uh, Systematic Theology and Bible Doctrine, wrote wrote this about Jesus' resurrection. He says, Though Jesus' body was still a physical body, it was raised as a transformed body, never able again to suffer, be weak, or ill, or die. He had put on immortality. 1 Corinthians 15, 53. Just think about that. Transformed, raised, never able again to suffer, be weak, ill, or die. It's a picture of heaven. First John says that everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. You want to be pure? You want to work on your holiness? Think about the resurrection. Think about being fit with a glorified body, never able to suffer again. First Corinthians 15, it echoes these promises. It says that we're going to be imperishable, in glory, in power, in a spiritual body. Now I want to talk about something, just uh, kind of as a side note and a lead-in for where we're going to end up. Um, it's so important that we believe in the resurrection. Uh, verse 14 is picking up on this idea. For since we believe, uh, we, we need to believe all of the gospel and we need to understand it. And one place in the gospels where it's talking about believing in the resurrection is the story of Lazarus. And where he was raised. Now, he was raised in a different way than we'll be raised. We're going to be raised um, eternally. We're we're going to throw off the imperishable and we're going to put on, I mean, we're going to throw off the perishable and we're going to put on the imperishable. 1 Corinthians 15, 52 through 55. The dead in Christ will be raised imperishable and will be changed and will never die again, right? Lazarus, when he was raised from the dead... He was grazed and he was going to die again. When the little girl was raised in that miracle story from Mark 5, she was raised from death, but she would die again. We're going to be raised and we're never going to die again. But at the same time, John chapter 11 is very insightful and very instructive when we think in terms of believing in the resurrection. So let me invite you to turn to John chapter 11. I want to talk about this story. Because Jesus is standing right there with Mary and Martha and the disciples, and he is teaching that he is the point of the resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And the reason that he raises Lazarus from the dead has less to do with the fact that he's rescuing this this young man that he loved from death and more to do with the fact that Jesus is the author of our resurrection and we're supposed to believe in it. And Paul, back in 1 Thessalonians, he wanted this church to believe in the resurrection and Jesus, in the same way, in John chapter 11, is emphasizing the fact that we need to believe in the resurrection. 
I want this for you. I, I want to look at John 11 because I want you to, to get it. I want you to grab onto the resurrection. When you think of the gospel, I want you to think empty tomb, cross and empty tomb, and Jesus' return. I want you to think about it all because in that way you'll be stronger. You'll be stronger to face life's trials and suffering. And that's what John 11 is talking about. John 11, beginning at verse 1, introduces Lazarus. He's a Bethany. He's got a couple sisters, Mary and Martha. He's the brother. And he was ill, and so they sent word to Jesus. The sisters did. And they said directly to him, Lord, he whom you love is ill. The end of verse 3. But Jesus, he, he allowed for some time to lapse, a couple days to lapse, so that, so that Lazarus would indeed die. And you might say, well, that, you know, why did he do that? We did that because he wanted Martha and Mary's faith to stretch. He wanted this to hit them in a strong way. And if Lazarus wasn't all the way verifiably documented as dead, then this resurrection moment would not be powerful to them. So he was allowing for some time to pass. Um, the passage goes on to talk about that the area where Lazarus died was kind of a dangerous place because there were religious leaders, scribes and Pharisees who had tried to stone Jesus during, um, during this time. Verse 11 picks up with the story. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Jesus is using the sleep language to picture death. He was really talking about death. He says in verse 14, Lazarus has died. And look at verse 15. Here's the point. For your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. That's what he wants. He uses this word believe over and over and over again. He says, but let us go to him. Now, by contrast, verse 16 picks up with the grumpy disciple. That's what I call Thomas. Thomas seems like the grumpy disciple to me. I mean, listen to this. This is some humor here. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go, let us also go that we may die with him. (laughs) Wah, 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 right? I mean, you know, Jesus is going, I'm going to to raise Lazarus. And, and, you know, there was some talk about it being dangerous. And, you know, there were stonings that were going on. And and Thomas says, yeah, well, let us all just go with you, you know, downtown and we're all going to die together. That'll be fun. So then you got verse 17, which documents that Lazarus was dead. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Uh, This is the key to proving that Lazarus was dead. He wasn't just mostly dead. He was all the way dead, right? I mean, when the stone was removed, he um, smelled and reeked, and that was also proving that he was dead. You've got the first sister that shows up, and she kind of in a semi-accusational but... A non-accusational way is saying that had you been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 21. But even now, verse 22, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. It's a little test phrase there. He's going to rise again. She's like, I know, I know, I know. Theologically, I've read my theology and Bible and, and that in the end there will be the resurrection. I get that, but I'm really grieved right now. I'm kind of bummed that, you know. And, and Jesus is saying, look at me. I'm the resurrection and the life. Verse 25, Jesus said there, I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the author of this. When we believe in the resurrection, you know what we're doing? We're not believing in theology. We're believing in Jesus and the truth, which is theology. 
But we're believing in Jesus. We're entrusting our soul to Him as we're grieving. That our loved ones will be raised and we will be raised and reunited with Jesus. Here it is, middle of verse 25. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And everyone who lives and, watch this, believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So he's just concreting this in her mind. And then he moves on. The story moves on to Mary. She comes in verse 32. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was what? Deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. It's another key insight into the Lord's heart. We're seeing death through his eyes here. He's concerned for people who are grieving. He's empathetic. And though he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he weeps. There are people, there are so many people that struggle with understanding and reconciling Jesus weeping with the fact that he has the power and the knowledge that he's going to raise him from the dead. I don't struggle with that. Jesus is fully God and fully man. So in his deity, yes, he's going to rise, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But in his humanity and empathy, he's weeping in the moment. Is it wrong for you to weep over people that you loved? No. We weep like Jesus wept. We weep. We hurt. It's real. Real emotion, real heartache, real difficulty. It's normal, natural. It's right. It's ministry. It's ministry. That's what Jesus is doing. He's ministering. There's nothing wrong about that. People say, you know, well, Jesus, his tears had to be more, you know, over the grief of sin in general or something. No, no, no. He, he's, he saw... He saw this, this woman that, that he loved. He saw Mary. He saw Martha. He, he's, you know, he's right at the tomb of Lazarus. And he, he breaks down and cries. That's it. Verse 35, Jesus wept. There's no explanation really given. Then you've got the skeptics, verse 37. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind, all, blind, blind man also have kept this man from dying? Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Why did he come? Well, he wanted to prove that he is the Lord of the resurrection. He's the resurrection and the life. He also had a heart for the moment. Again, they removed the stone. There was odor there. He had been dead for four days. And then verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Then he prayed, he lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around that they may what? Believe that you sent me. It's just a mega theme in this section. I mean, belief or faith is mentioned 90 sometimes in the book of John. It's just a big deal. And that's all we've got. That's what we cling to in our times of grief. Our faith in truth our knowledge of the resurrection. Now, verse 43, this is a foreshadowing of the resurrection. This foreshadows next week's sermon, the way Jesus calls Lazarus forth. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary had seen and had seen what he did, what? 
believed in him. That's why I did it. That's why Paul pointed us and pointed this church back to Jesus' resurrection. You believe Jesus was raised, so you need to also believe that through Jesus, people are going to be led and reunited at the resurrection. That's where there's comfort. All right, a couple take-home points. Number one, grieving over life's trials is natural and normal. Please don't hear anything in what I've said or reading between the lines for me to say that you should not grieve when you lose people, when you lose loved ones. It's normal, it's natural, it's the way God um, designed us. And we know this because Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five, and Romans twelve fifteen says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. It's ministry, it's what we are designed and called to do. Come on, coming alongside people, weeping with people. When people are hurting, just go and empathize. Put your arm around them. And you know what? That's ministry. There's a lot of ways that we, I think, shape up the way that we should use our gifts and talents in the body of Christ. But showing up is right at the top. Right? That's being like Jesus. That's what we should do. Number two, God's word should be our chief counselor. Paul had a heart for them not to be uninformed. He wanted them to be informed. He didn't want them to be agnostic without knowledge. He wanted them to have a sure foundation. Truth, it's a sure foundation. It redirects our thinking. It informs our conscience. The truth is what tempers this excess grief or excess worry, excess um, excessive fear. So it gives us joy. It, it re, readjusts or refocuses the way that we think. And so we need truth. Number three, the resurrection mingles our sorrow with comfort. Helps us find perspective. The truth of the resurrection that's found in Jesus' gospel, him being raised, is what launches us to believe in his sure return. Do you believe in the resurrection? We should. We must. It is the gospel. It's not enough just to believe in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We must also believe and embrace that Jesus will bodily return for us. That is the gospel. Let's stand together as we close.